Welcome to the Scottish Business Network podcast. Hello, I'm Fraser Allen. Welcome to episode 38. We are living in extraordinary times, so why not take some time out to listen to a truly extraordinary man? Aside from many other endurance feats, Mark Bowman has cycled around the globe twice, breaking the world record both times, a record he still holds today. Yet few realise that Mark is as comfortable in a business suit as he is in cycling lycra. His experience in defining a venture, developing the finance, building the team and then successfully marketing the concept means he has a lot to offer Scotland's startup ecosystem. His story and his insights are fascinating. I interviewed Mark on Monday the 23rd of March, the day before the UK went into coronavirus lockdown. Hello Mark. Hi there. Lovely to speak to you. We were going to meet up at your your house in Edinburgh today, but for obvious reasons, we're doing this online. We've got a lot of ground to cover. We want to talk about, obviously, people know you for your exploits in terms of cycling around the world, etc. But you have another life, uh, which is all about business. Before we crack on with that, it would seem odd not to to mention the, the, the coronavirus uh, backdrop that we're we're working in. So, what is life looking like for you at the moment, Mark? In terms of how the next few days, weeks, months may pan out. Well, I think like everyone, I mean, it's it's changed beyond recognition. I mean, I guess I was never somebody who went to an office job. I've never had a nine to five. I've always driven my own business for the last fifteen years. So, um, you know, I've always had that flexibility. And whilst I have typically in the last few years been travelling for half of my time. And I've been evolving the focus of what I do, you know, away from some of the big expeditions in the sport to some of the other business ventures. Uh, the, the impact is incredible, you know, for any, anyone who. So, so I guess on one side of the coin, um, it's not a complete shutdown for me because, you know, I wasn't, mm-hmm. you know, going to a job and, and having sort of a, no, a normal sort of business structure around what I do. And I've got a portfolio approach. So I've got multiple things on the go. But the other side of the coin is that. A huge amount of my work relies on events, on meetings, on travel. Right. And of course, none of that's happening over the next, uh, well, who knows, two, three months. Very, very strange times. Now, let's let's go back to kind of where it all began for you, you Mark. Where, where, where did life begin? Uh, what was your childhood like? I mean, my childhood, I, I guess, in comparison, was, was slightly odd. I mean, it was wonderful. And you don't really analyse your own childhood until you've got your own children. So I now live in the middle of Edinburgh. I've got two young daughters and, you know, they attend school, which is 400 metres from where we live. Compare that to growing up in uh, rural Perthshire, a long way from anywhere. Right. And, um, you know, I was homeschooled. So I was, I didn't go to school right. until I was 12. And um, life for me was get up in the morning, you know, and run the farm. Okay, we did an hour or two, right. an hour or two around the kitchen table, but you know we had sixty goats to milk, we had thirteen horses, we had sheep and cattle, we had we had a farm to run, and even by the time I went to school, you know it was a it was a big commute. It was um, you know, thirty miles each way to get to school, and um, yeah, I was I was just a a farm boy. So I found the I found the transition pretty tough to be honest. Going to high school after just myself and my sisters living on the farm for the first twelve years of our life. You must be pretty well prepared for the the current homeschooling requirements in that case, I guess. We were laughing about it because my wife is a teacher and I was homeschooled. So, um, yeah, on the grand scale of things, we'll be okay. (laughs) No excuses there. 
So you went, you went to Dundee High School? Yes, yes, which, which, was, which, was, which was great. I mean, I've got fond memories on balance, but, you know, if you don't go to school and if you don't learn the politics of the playground until you're 12, you've got, right. you've got a lot to learn. And I, I mean, at that, at that time, Dundee High School was sort of pretty rugby obsessed. So if you didn't play rugby... Um, no other sport counted. So the fact I was that sort of farm farm kid who went skiing and rode, right. rode ponies and rode my bicycle, um, you know, and I was pretty socially inept. I mean, I can joke about it now, but I, you know, I just I had a pretty rough ride to begin with. Whilst I sort of right. learned ha- right. learned, you know, you can imagine going from living on your own with your sisters on a farm in the middle of nowhere mm. to mm. being plonked into a school of twelve hundred kids in the middle of a city. So it's so quite an ex- unusual, extraordinary in some ways uh, period of growing up, but even more so because then at the age of 15, you, you cycled from John O'Groats to Land's End. How did that all come about? Yeah, absolutely. You're, you're, um, you're witnessing one of the first challenges from working from home with the sound of the kids and the dogs in the background here. But uh, I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure listeners will appreciate um, you know, what, we're, what we're dealing with here. So go, sorry, going, going back to, to sort of where I started sort of with these adventures, 15 was my mm. first thousand mile trip, the Land's End to John O'Groats, but it really started before that. I was um, just going to high school for the first time. 11, 12 years old, and I had the idea to go on a journey, and that was Dundee to Oban, so that was across Scotland. And, I mean, I always talk about the fact that it wasn't just the sport of it. I mean, of course, it's great fun at that age to pedal coast to coast across Scotland, mm. but it was the planning of it. It was the going door to door in Blegarry and my local village, Bridgicalli, you know, doing fundraising, you know, the independence that I was given to actually plan a trip like that. And then afterwards... Um, you know, presenting charity checks to royalty and getting my picture in the paper and just a bit of profile at a time where I was, you know, struggling, to be honest. Um, you know, I'd, I, right. I was, you know, early teenage years, didn't enjoy that transition to, to high school, wasn't, you know, doing particularly well, uh, you know, so, so socially, academically, I was fine. But my point is, it really became something which was a bit of an identity. You know, I was like, okay, this is something I can do. Uh, and I'm successful mm. at when I'm, you know, not fitting in particularly well. And I, I look back, you know, with interest at that stage and realize that, you know, I can reverse engineer the last 25 years. I'm now 37. And there's a clear chronology from the age of 12 pedaling across Scotland to, you know, mm. what I've gone on to do professionally. But at no point... What did I sort of sit there as a kid and go, oh, I want to be a professional adventurer or athlete or record-breaking right. or broadcaster or any of these things? One thing very clearly led to the next. And I can look back okay. and there's, you know, there's a, as I say, it looks almost inevitable. It looks very professional. That's not the way you live life. That's the way it looks when you look back on a career. I did sort of wonder if you, at that age, you were cycling around thinking, you know, it's going to be the world that I'll take on next. And you did, of course, not that much later on. But also, in the meantime, you went to to University of Glasgow to study economics and politics. Do those continue to be areas of big interest to you? Uh, yeah, hugely. Um, I mean, the truth of the matter is my favourite subject at school was art. You know, I wanted to pursue art. I was sort of, um, I was I was good at art and it was definitely, I was very creative. And, um, but I, I did well at school. You know, I was, I was sort of a straight A kid and that, <laughs> as some people might um relate well to you know I always worry my, my, my big sister's an educational psychologist and I always speak to her because she's working with young people who are falling out the education system and struggling 
um, which is a massive concern and, 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 you know, rightly that there's professionals like my sister to support. But I also worry about the equal and opposite. I worry about, you know, the, the brightest kids who find school and high school relatively straightforward, who in our sort of Western world, if you like, get fast tracked um, into careers that they quite often don't really stop and make choices about. So I think, right. be, you know, intelligence, social intelligence, academic intelligence is hugely important. But 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 the really, really important ingredient with young people is choice, the ability to make choices, to back mm-hmm. yourself, to feel like you're in the driving seat of your own career, to, to, to understand the risk reward equation around, you know, making your own mind up. And, you know, when you're, when you're, when you do very well academically, you know, when you're good at, in the books and in the exams, quite often the, the the social pressure and the peer pressure means that you, I mean, you'll know this as well. You have people who, you know, wake up in their 30s and 40s or 50s or whatever it is and suddenly go, oh my goodness, I'm not sure I've actually made a single choice here. You know, I've, I've simply been mm. fast-tracked by the world we live in because I'm I'm good at what I do. And, you know, I've always been desperate to avoid that and to be critical, to be self-critical and to be, you know, self-aware enough. And it's the biggest thing that I talk to my kids about. And, you know, all the work I do in education is very much around not just about sort of pursuing the things that you have an excellence for, because we all have a skill set. Um, we're not we're yeah. not all book smart, but but can you build the ability to make sort of personal choices? So so I, you know, I wanted to take my art into architecture and actually you know, a joint honours with civil engineering. Um, I did some work experience, which in, at the last minute, uh, you know, made me realise that, you know, whilst I enjoyed that, you know, at that age, it wasn't something I wanted to do. It was hugely important when I was 17, 18, 19, to actually go and work with people who were 10, 20, 30 years into the career and look at them and go, do I want to do what they are doing? And the answer was no. So I took a quick a quick U-turn Um <laughs> And went, oh, crikey, what am I going to do? And um, I was in at Glasgow University and a few others. And I, um, I, I I sort of slightly panicked at that point and I thought, well, and phoned up the, um, the, the, the office and they said, well, you're going to have to go back through the system, take another year and, um, and, and then, you know, reapply. And I said, well, I can't do that. I'm not going to take another, another year out. I was already taking a year off to go and be a ski instructor in Italy. So I literally right. got on the train to Glasgow with the perspective on my on my um you know on my lap and sort of flicked through the pages and I thought well <laughs> as a passport degree what am I interested in I don't really know what I want to do when I grow up but you know what 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 can I do which is going to give me options and so I I chose between economics and law and I walked into the law faculty literally you know as a as a 17 18 year old met the first professor whose door was open and explained my situation. He said, nope, you're going to have to go back through the system and, you know, we can't help you sort of thing. And so I walked over to the economics building, um, met the first professor who would um, who would let me in and explained the same situation. And he said, right, well, that's fine. You know, considering your grades and who you are and the conversation we've had over the last 10 minutes, you know, we'll sort this out. You're in. And I, I then disappeared yeah. off on my year out, having, you know, almost forgotten those choices. And I more t- mm. I more tell that story because if I hadn't got on the train and gone through to Glasgow and sourced it out myself, you know, who knows where I would have ended up in terms of those yeah. academic studies. But I, th- I only tell this because that approach to life, I think, is quite important. You know, if I, if you were 
we don't live in a meritocracy. We don't live in a world where, mm. you know, people who are the most academic or the most brightest, you know, succeed the most. It's those who take risks and back themselves. And, you know, at that age, suddenly going, right, what am I going to do? How am I going to create it? It's very similar to, you know, then leaving with an economics and politics degree and saying, hey, I'm going to cycle around the world. If I'd actually looked around me and said, am I the most qualified, you know, best person to break a world record for cycling around the planet, I wouldn't have got out of bed. Why would you bother? I mean, you know, I'm not the best bike rider in Edinburgh, let alone Scotland, let alone the world. I'd never been coached, never been trained. So it's quite often in the true entrepreneurial sense of the world, having an idea and not being pie in the sky about it, not just sort of being, you know, utterly ridiculous and trying anything and then failing trying, then being a proper student of of what you're trying to do and then backfill it with all the information and say, well, how is this possible? Bottom-up planning. And I think it's interesting to share that because whether we end up talking about being an athlete or, you know, the studies I took or now things I'm doing in business, it's having the quiet confidence to actually have a big idea and then fill out, you know, find out, you know, all the all the due diligence and all the information you need to make it happen. And I think a lot of people just don't back themselves to that degree. You know, they're very book smart or they're very socially yes. smart, but they've not built the life habit of, of you know, making interesting decisions and saying, well, look, the crowd are going that way. I'm going to go this way. Why? Because I see an opportunity. And and that, that that's an interesting sort of life trick. So after a kind of un, unhappy experience at school, did you enjoy university of life? University, I spent most of my time doing other stuff. I mean, I was uh, I was enjoying economics and politics. All the subjects I chose were about development economics, international politics, you know, IR sort of. It was all things which were sort of global. I didn't really focus on UK stuff. So I've always sort of had that sort of that interest in terms of how the world works and the history of things. Right. You know, I've grown up with a, a very sort of, you know, rich reading list in terms of early exploration and travel, which, you know, you can kind of see where these inspirations have, have, have come from. But um, I spent most of my time at university organizing stuff, be that, you know, through, first of all, the ski and snowboard club, and then the sports association being treasurer, you know, just the responsibility in my early 20s of running about 30 clubs and, you know, a budget of, nice. you know, a couple of million yeah. quid is, is a really useful you know, even if it's just doing the rotor for minibuses and organizing mm, committee mm. meetings and, you know, minuting things properly and that those processes are actually more relevant post-university than can you sit in the library and remember stuff. Scale it up, you can plan expeditions with. Let's go through now, uh, if you could explain how from graduating from university, just two years later, you did this extraordinary thing of breaking the world record for cycling around the world. How did that all come about? Well, I mean, at that point, I simply thought, I'm only going to get one chance. I thought I've, I've, I've sort of spent the last decade from the age of 12 to 22 doing expeditions, which had got sort of bigger and bigger and bigger. And I thought, well, if I've only got one chance, let's pedal around the planet. And I assumed that the circumnavigation world record would be the most coveted, the most professional prize in cycling it's the world you know i'd as a teenager watched ellen MacArthur sail around the world and i thought cycling would be in the same league it wasn't mm -hmm. it was not the the, the, the circumnavigation an eighteen thousand mile race stood at 276 days now right. now i mean i don't know how that lands with most people but you know if you're trying to race around the planet well the record is now less than 80 and bikes aren't that much better than they were 15 years ago so um you know i looked at that and i thought wow why is this not being done properly 
as I said before, mm. it wasn't me rating myself as the world's best bike rider. It was just suddenly realizing, hang on, there's a gap here. And more more importantly, why have the last three people come home within a matter of days of each other? They're clearly just trying to pip each other's records. What if you could, you know, really try and figure out what's possible here and then, you know, do something markedly different? So I set out with a simple plan to ride 100 miles a day, a century a day. So what's that? Edinburgh to Glasgow, back to Edinburgh again every single okay. day for the next six months. And that's what I did. I mean, in simple terms, I spent half a year having the adventure of a lifetime, still probably my favorite expedition ever. You imagine you've just left university and you're now pedaling through Iran, sleeping in mosques and, you know, Pakistan under armed guard. And I mean, it was properly exciting. Half a year out there. And I came back, I'd filmed a BBC documentary series, BBC One. And then um, I had no idea by telling that story and putting it on a major platform, what opportunities that would then give. I mean, if you imagine you go from pulling pints in a bar in Glasgow for four years to then mm. peddling around the world, breaking a world record by two months, not because, as I say, na- looking back now, that record is mm. pretty pedestrian. I mean, you wouldn't even make the papers for doing that now. All I did then was really spot an opportunity and execute on a plan right. and tell a story. And the telling the story bit was really what gave me the platform to continue to, to build the, the, the career I've, I've, I've taken on. And I guess the, the obviously, the, you know, the cycling is a big challenge, but it's the, the there's an element of danger there as well. There must have been some pretty hairy uh, experiences. Yeah, of course. I mean, over the years, I've been to 130 countries, you know, made films, taken on lots of things which people would perceive as dangerous. Um, some ocean rowing, Arctic expeditions, high altitude Certainly cycling, you know, is not without its risks. I'm not a cavalier person, you know, I'm not doing I'm not doing sort of free solo stuff. I'm not free climbing. I'm not, you know, I'm not doing stuff mm. which is I would describe as sort of adrenaline junkie material. Having said that, you know, a lot of these athletes who do pursue those sort of more extreme sports, you know, that they've they've become the absolute best in class. They they would also say that they are sort of taking calculated risks based on the skill set they've got. So I would qualify what I do and say, so so risk risk is not a particularly helpful word until you look at exposure. Exposure is defined as how likely is something to go wrong, and if it does go wrong, how serious are the consequences? So you can do this in business, you know, financially, whatever. You can do it when you're climbing a mountain. So quite quite often, the likelihood of things going wrong is very very little. But if they do go wrong then, you know, you've got a serious problem. I mean, look at the current, you know, COVID-19 situation. Nobody saw it coming. Uh, I think, you know, if you were to stretch it out over a timeline of decades, the the likelihood of it happening, you know, nobody really had this in their insurance policies. When it does happen, Mm. you know, this is incredibly high exposure based on that sort of, that sort of sum. So it's, when it, whatever risks, quote unquote, you're taking on in life, it's, it's worth sort of categorizing how you quantify those risks. And the, of course, there's things that I do, you know, 10, 15 years into my career, which other people can't do. I, like anyone who's really pushed their ambition, their skill set, their comfort zone, the way they think under pressure. You know, if I was to look at, a, you know, any professional, I shouldn't be able to step into their shoes 15, 20 years into what they do and just be able to do what they do. It's more than the mm. sum of their skill sets. It's their... It's their life experience in the true sense of that word. So I'm certainly not cavalier about risk. I accept that some of the things that I do are perceived as risky. 
And, um, you know, some of it is because I don't have to be quite so conscious about those things. I've done things before, which gives me a reference point for, for, the, for, the, for that decision making. But, but let's be honest, sometimes things go horribly wrong. I mean, you know, capsizing in the middle of the Atlantic, I've seen people pay the ultimate price in the mountains, lose their lives. You know, the, the, these, right. these projects are not, not without their risks. But mm. I think on balance, you know, I'm quite a, I'm quite a planner. You know, I'd, and I'd, I certainly don't go into these things because I want to have that surge of adrenaline and excitement of feeling like I'm out of control. So when you returned, when you'd, you'd completed the, the challenge, was it straight difficult adjusting to normal, in inverted quotes, life? It always is. It always is. I mean, if you talk to somebody who has pedaled around the planet and smashed a world record or built a business and sold it or an Olympian who has trained for four years towards a, a single event, the moment after you complete that sort of career-defining, life-affirming moment, you don't live on cloud nine. It's not like this sort of never-ever-land where you've sort of the thing you've aspired to. There's a real void, and that's the best way to describe it. And I've lived that cycle for the last fifteen years. Everything I've done is like a, you know, a startup. You've got to have the idea. Trust. You've got to build the finance, build the team. You've got to build belief. You've got to execute on a plan, and then. You've done it, and you you get all the, you know the, the the profile and the the you know the 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 feedback from the press and the public for those things, and then personally you can feel quite isolated. You can feel quite alone because when you've got that sense of drive and commitment, I mean, a lot of entrepreneurs listening to this will understand what that feels like. You know, just getting out of bed, being defined, you know, just the purpose that you get from having a plan and having a having a mission and then when that goes my goodness it's, it's empty and, and, okay. and I think it's yeah. I think it's worth just being honest about it because you know we all slightly drop off a cliff after we've you know achieved what we set out to achieve behind all this were you then also sort of getting involved in in your sort of business ventures how, how did the two go hand in hand well I mean on, on on the personal front I never wanted to be an athlete who was sort of I always saw the the cycle, if you like, of going to sponsors to fund your next project, doing the next project, and then, you know, speaking off the back of it and, you know, going back cap in hand, you know, to, to finance the next project. I saw that as a, I always wanted to separate that from the core business of what I do. Because whilst you can have a lot of cash flow in the business because these projects cost quite a lot, you know, sponsors don't really want to be paying for your a lot of your major overheads and your you know salaries and and um, you know mortgages and and the, the the practicalities of life. They want to be paying for the the thing they're you know get out there and pedal around the planet or whatever it is. So I I sort of felt that the traditional business model of a lot of sports sponsorship is not massively sustainable. It's certainly not a growth business, and. Mm-hmm. So a long time ago, I tried to build a small portfolio of retained roles who were who I could businesses I could work with in a you know a really ongrow, ongoing sort of impactful way, which was mm-hmm. it benefited from the fact that I was out there as an athlete doing interesting things and making films and the rest of it, but it wasn't directly correlated. They weren't the names on the shirts. They weren't you know my relationship with them was 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 autonomous. So, so I did that about a decade ago, and it's and it's worked. It's given me 
security in my business and it's allowed me to go out to sponsors and say look we will give earned media value we will build awareness around these projects but you're only paying for what you're paying for you're not paying for all the other stuff to for to allow me and my teams to sustain a business alongside so that's that's one side which i did a long time ago but it's also because fundamentally i've always had an interest in in business in economics in especially in early stage business so the, the, one of the initial catalysts for this was Entrepreneurial Scotland. Now, when I was at Glasgow University, I was the very first cohort which was sent over to Boston for what was called the Tomorrow's Leaders programs. That was run by um, Scottish Enterprise. It then got well, it then got rebranded as the Saltire program, Saltire Foundation. That then got sort of spun out, so it became independent from the Scottish government. And then the Saltire Programme, Saltire Foundation became part of Entrepreneurial Scotland. So that evolution over the last, what are we talking now, 12, 15 years, you know, I've loosely been a part of, you know, I was one of the first mm. guinea pigs to be sent over going, well, how does this work? And I absolutely mm. loved my summer out there as a in my early 20s. I'm still friends with some of the executives I worked with, and they've been real mentors and support for my career, people like Helen Sales. And, um, you know, Sandy Kennedy and, you know, Chris van der Kyl and these people who are who have John Watson, who have helped shape what um, ES these days, you know, I've, I've kept a part of that, um, of, of that sort of ecosystem. But wider than that, you know, I wanted to have an involvement with interesting businesses doing doing interesting things. I didn't want to just sort of be a poster boy and sort of be out there at events talking about these things. So mm. one of my longest standing relationships in terms of sponsorship, which started back in 2008, was with private equity, with LDC, Lloyd's Development Capital. And for the first four or five years working with them, you know, I was hosting dinners, I was speaking at events, and I was, you know, at their away days, getting to know the team. As that business evolved and changed over the years, I became more and more interested and aware of sort of how those transactions work, you know, understanding the due diligence around investing in businesses and what that sort of mid-market world looked like in Scotland, but also, you know, across the UK. So I ended up being involved in a lot more origination, you know, building relationships and getting to know business founders, entrepreneurs, you know, boards, working with some of the management teams within the portfolios who are working towards an exit, some of the sort of the strategy, restructuring, growth plans. So that became a real interest of mine over the next sort of five, 10 years, which kind of brings me to where we are now. And in the last few years, I felt that I want to continue doing that. And I, you know, continue to work in private equity. But I also mm. wanted, I saw a massive gap, especially in Scotland, much earlier on, where you know, I, I was now at a position sort of 15 years into my career where I could personally get involved in some early stage businesses. I wanted to right. help steer them the way I had with some of the bigger businesses I'd been involved in. And um, I spent a, the course of about a year, this is a few years ago now, meeting a lot of the investment syndicates in Scotland, meeting a lot of people involved in those that, that sort of early stage scene, partly because I was already connected with them through my role as the rector at the University of Dundee and, you know, Entrepreneur in Scotland and others. So it was very easy for me to tap into these conversations and just try and figure out where do I put my energy? How do I, in Scotland, make a difference to that ecosystem, that early stage ecosystem? You know, we've got such a rich history of, you know, I'm not just talking about the last five, 10 years now, I'm talking about the last century plus 
of innovation, creativity, you know, especially when it comes to science, engineering, technology. How could how could how could I how could I, I I'm not about to start my own business in those in those spaces, but I've I've well, lived my own career where I take on what a lot of people consider to be the impossible. I've got a great track record of coming up with a concept, building the finance around it, building the right team, and then building public awareness around it. So the marketing and profile side of it is hugely important. So, you know, right. so I, I, I'm very clear, I'm not going to be the accountant sort of, or the, or the lawyer working through the details of the transaction, but the people side of the conversation making making sure these businesses are market ready and ultimately you know trying to turn great ideas into you know real sort of impact investments things which you can scale not just in scotland but globally that's become a real interest of mine and i just sort of sort of felt that was a natural extension from the things i've been interested in since i was a you know a kid at glasgow university so pre-coronavirus situation, what what is there such a thing as a typical Mark Bowman week? What sort of things are you juggling in your portfolio? <laughs> um, so, I mean, in in simple terms, I still train. I'm a better person when I train, and I, you know, I I, I prioritise training for the fact that I'm, you know, a dad with two little girls at home and Nikki, my wife. I need to get that headspace because physically and mentally it allows me to be more productive. But also because I still spend probably 25, 30% of my time making films, traveling, you know, being creative. I love that side mm. of things because being completely honest, I mean, A, I would do it if it paid nothing because it's just good for the soul. I, you know, I, <coughs> sorry, excuse me. I, I realized that, you know, I've got that unique opportunity off the back of a professional athletic career to continue to go out there and push myself. And unlike sort of having to retire from rugby or football, you know, I've, I've always built my own career so I can continue to do these things. You know, I spent the whole of December mm. out making a film in Chile about free riding the world's highest volcano. Um, nice. And, you know, I was made another little film down in Patagonia there. So, you know, if I spend 20 to 30% of my time and my year making films like that, a, I, you know, I'll be honest, I absolutely love that. I don't want to make it the mainstay of what I do, but I I do it because um, it's good fun. I think it's stories worth sharing. I, I love the fact that it gives other people the quiet confidence to go out there and push their own ambitions. And I think most people know me for that 20, 30% of what I do. They just see me as a bike rider and as an athlete. But also because in the other, whatever it is, 70, 80% of my time, it is still very useful having a public profile it's still very useful being an, mm. being an athlete albeit it's a minority of my time now because the common ground we're all people at the end of the day so whilst we're not all climbing volcanoes and cycling around the world we've all got a connection to scotland and the great outdoors we've all got a connection to to sport and to well-being and activity so these conversations around just what makes us human and ambition just raw ambition i find is just a wonderful way to get to know people and, you know, ask about their interests. And, you know, I joke about the fact that I spend half my life in a suit and half my life in Lycra, but people want to connect to the side of their life and their interests, which is not in a suit. And I, and, and whether I'm sort of building a relationship for a mid-market private equity deal, or I'm, you know, 
building the early stage innovation fund or working with students through universities in Scotland, I think those wider interests, A, they give you credibility, but also it's just it's just such a, a wonderful catalyst for positive conversations. I think a lot of people listening will have had no idea about the, the business side as opposed to the Lycra side. <laughs> we, we cannot, though, continue any further with it in this podcast without going back to 2017 because mm-hmm. um, your world record had been taken from you, hadn't it, in terms of cycling around the globe. So you regained it in 2017. So how, how did it compare? What, what, how did it feel different the second time around? I mean, it's the same rate. It's the same record. Uh, it's still an 18,000-mile route around the planet. But by experience, it couldn't be any more different. So second time around, I had a team of 40 people working on that project over two and a half years. cost a lot of money, and it was hugely complicated. So, you know, the first time I pedaled around the planet, I was on my Todd. I was on my own. I had my mum sitting back in back on the farm, you know, with the maps out and phoning British embassies and lazing with the BBC. I mean, it was wonderfully simple first time around. Now, let's be honest. First time around the planet on my own, unsupported, was a much better adventure in the true sense of the word adventure. Mm. I had no idea where I was going to end up each night. I had no idea, you know, what where the next meal or clean water was. Second time around, it was one more, one, much more one-dimensional. You know, I just was racing as fast as I could, as far as I could every day. I averaged 240 miles every single day for two and a half months. Wow. You know, that's a massive leap in performance from what had gone before. We took the record from 123 days down to 78. So wow. do not put too fine a point on it, but we broke the world record by 37%. We broke our target by 1.44%. I mean, that was a... I am mean, so proud of the team and what we created because we 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 executed on a plan exactly, both by time and by budget. And it was hard. It was incredibly, you know, strenuous, but it but it ultimately worked. And there was no it wasn't a case of, right, let's train and see what happens. We we built a plan and we worked it. We worked that plan. So the second time around the planet is is not nearly as interesting in one sense. Because, you know, the first time was a proper raw adventure. But the second time makes the first time look like kindergarten. I mean, the, in ter- as an athlete and the complexity yeah. and the scale of it, you know, you just can't compare those things. Uh, I'll tell you something. This year, well, let's see what happens with coronavirus. But there's meant to be three women setting out to try and break the female circumnavigation world record, which, interestingly, right. is, at the moment is also held by a Scot, Jenny Graham. Um but there's no there's no men, there's no blokes trying to break my record. And I'd love to see that happen. I mean, I took nearly 40% off it. You're not going to do that again. But, you know, we live in very exciting times. How can you take all the planning and the process that we put together for that ultimate? How fast can you get around the planet under your own steam and, you know, shift the dial? How can you, how can you beat that? I would love to see, I'd love to see how that gets bettered. Um, if, so if if somebody does that in the in the next few years, will you be back out there to do it a third time? I mean, I'll say no. I said no the first time, though. Um, <laughs> I mean, there, there does come a, become a, a point where you know you physically couldn't go any further. I mean, mm. the good thing about endurance is you can keep going. You know, I'm 37. There's no reason I can't be doing these things when I'm 47 and 57. But you know, there's obviously a natural. Um, point in your life when you're best physically and mentally able to sustain that degree of suffering i mean let's not sure, yeah. you know you know you, 
yes, I've got an amazing team, but ultimately if I fail, everyone fails. And um, could I go faster, further? I, I mean, I feel not because it certainly felt my, like my first personal best out there. It felt like, you know, the hardest thing I'd ever done. But guess what? It was also exactly what we set out to do. So the power of expectation, the power of the plan, it's, um, it's fascinating once you start to delve into that psychology. And what's the next, if you have, do you have a, an endurance challenge up your sleeve? I was meant to be heading out to take on Race Across America in the summer, in June, but that's looking decidedly um, unlikely now. Now, I mean, the simple motivation for that is that um, Race Across America is the world's biggest endurance race. It's, um, you know, it's the highest profile, toughest endurance race out there. It's the same distance, roughly, as the Tour de France, except for it's not in stages. It's nonstop. You know, you, the Tour de France happens over three weeks. This is all over in mm. eight, nine days. It's absolutely brutal. You know, it's coast to coast, almost nonstop without sleeping. So it's everything I've ever done since I was a 12-year-old kid, but just bottled into a 3,000-mile race. Last main question. If you could give the 15-year-old Mark Bowman any advice, what would it be? <laughs> it's a good question. I guess it's the question that I sort of think about with my kids all the time now. Mm. Maybe we'll um, maybe we'll start, finish where we started. Um, my 15-year-old self was desperate to conform like most 15 year olds are and I guess I've learned sort of growing up that the things which set us apart become our strengths as opposed to our weaknesses and in this sort of very very connected world um you know I am concerned and we're all concerned about what that next generation how how you take inspiration and positivity and ideas from that group collective, from the inspiration, whilst keeping that independence of mind, keeping that I'm in the driving seat for what I do. And, um, you know, there's, there's so much interesting research and conversation out there at the moment about how you sort of build that sort of grit, that quiet confidence, because it is the most important ingredient in any young people. So, you know, we, we've touched on, but not talked about in detail, you know, my work at the Centre for Entrepreneurship in Dundee. You know, I've stepped down now as the rector up at the university there, but I really enjoyed my term there. Um, work with Entrepreneurial Scotland and now working with the EOS Innovation Fund. The, the, the common thread through all of these things is trying to allow people who are taking on their own big ideas to to really back themselves, find people who will complement their mindset, you know, who will not sort of detract and and sort of put them off having those sort of entrepreneurial ideas and seeing them through. So as a 15-year-old, I was plagued with all the same insecurities that we all are. But, you know, having that, I would just try and be that sort of mentor for my 15-year-old self. I would just try and allow him to be sort of less concerned about you know, conforming and, 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 and more proud of the points where, you know, I had a passion or an interest or, you know, I felt like I could excel because, you know, over the, over the path of life, those, those are the things that create real opportunities for you. It's been really fascinating listening to you, Mark. We're going to finish now with five very quick questions, quick answers. First record you bought. <laughs> Crikey. Um, I would, I should have, uh, I should, right, quick fire, quick fire. Um, Patabantum. That's not a good one to um, admit to, but uh, that's the truth. <laughs> Favourite place in the world? I've got a choice of a heck of a lot, 130. All right, from recent experiences, mm -hmm. Mongolia. Uh, out of Mongolia, you know, the Mongolian steppe and um, oh. the Gobi Desert. 
What did you have for breakfast? This morning, I had uh, a little bowl of muesli and a coffee with a smoothie. Very healthy. Last book you read? Uh, Tipping Point and a few others by Malcolm Gladwell. So I've been working through his back catalogue at the moment. Some some interesting stuff there. And your favourite thing to do away from endurance, sports and business? Uh, like so, so many people, um, my entire life away from sport and business is consumed by the kids. And, um, you know, I'm being brutally honest here. There's not a lot of other hobbies going on at the moment. Playing music with my daughter. I play the cello. She plays the violin. So that's that's oh, that's, wow. that's a little daily routine that we've got. That I, I take a lot of pleasure from. Well, talking of daughters, I can hear mine outside anxiously wondering when I will be available for some entertainment. So I'd like to thank you very much, Mark. It's been uh, really interesting to hear both sides of your your life and wishing you all the best for the the rest of this rather strange year. Yeah, thank you. Well, thanks for having me on and uh, look forward to coming back at some point. Lots of food for thought there, whether you're on a bicycle, pondering a startup or looking out of the window, wondering when life will return to normality. I'll be back again in two weeks, though, with another great Scottish business story. To find out more about the Scottish Business Network, simply visit sbn.scot.